Oh, yeah. Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, life is good, can I just say, because the swimming pool is back open. I've been in the pool every day this week. I'm completely knackered, but it feels great to be getting some proper exercise again. And um, the days are getting longer, if not warmer, and it just feels a more optimistic place than it has done for a while. I haven't been to a pub yet, but I can. Should I want to sit outside in near zero conditions and drink a pint, which is probably top, not top of my list right now. Anyway, so good from my end. Hope you're doing well. And if you're in a country where you can also enjoy some opening up, I hope you're enjoying that too. Um, let's get back to the posts. So uh, first, of the po first of the week was links I liked. Struggled with this one because of the mood register, because on the one hand, I'm really horrified by what's going on in Tigray. Uh, so I linked to a really brilliant interview with Alex Duval on Channel 4 News and a couple of pieces and a really worrying map of the um, state of uh, hunger in Tigray. And it just looks an awful, horrendous humanitarian disaster in the making with food being used as a weapon of war and just you know, awful. But on the other hand, I'm also sticking up funnies like... Um, the number of memes coming out around Ever Given, the um, the big super tanker that got stuck in the Suez Canal, was extraordinary because you had this great picture of this giant, absolutely ridiculously big ship and a tiny bulldozer trying to shift it. And that gave rise to everybody, you know, relating very strongly to that. I think my favourite one was one which has on the Ever Given um, uh, hull the incessant crushing weight of existence and then a little arrow pointing to the to the tiny bulldozer saying drinking exactly two beers uh, but there were lots of others and there's some great collections of the memes if you if you're interested um second post of the week was a post by my colleague at LSE Tom Kirk so Tom and I are kind of inseparable we teach uh the course on activism there together at the LSE we um write research papers together you know we, we we're both running blogs he runs a blog called global policy um and um he, we our last session of term with the students which is now sadly over um we asked them what they wanted yeah we said it was a kind of you know special uh, special request lecture and the one that always comes up not surprisingly is jobs so tom did some really yeah interesting research and 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 summarized his presentation on the blog and so I'll just give you a couple of highlights from that because I think it was it was quite insightful. So starting with major trends that will likely outlast the virus, he said students' positionalities will continue to be the biggest determinant of their career prospects. So that basically means you know which where are you from, um, which country are you from, you know that that sort of question. Early career opportunities are concentrated in the global north. This is not to say one cannot find a way in elsewhere. But the competition is arguably fiercer and the paths more opaque. Um, and then he accepts that, yeah, that's partly about his knowledge of, of being limited to northern context, but he still thinks it's an issue. Um, he says in terms of topics and areas of work, the sector's swing towards fragile and conflict-affected states will probably endure, as will debates over what to do about poverty in middle-income countries, the localization agenda, aid to the aid to movement on decolonization and, and sexism in the aid sector and the political causes of underdevelopment. And then he says, across all of this, evidence, results and value for money will continue to be championed by aid donors and generate jobs for the kind of geeky graduates we get from the LSE. 
Um, pragmatic students should aim to be in security, health and disasters preparedness, or RCT, randomized control trial type wonks. With those interested in the politics of poverty, thinking about legal activism, professional campaigning, or corporate social responsibility. Um, and he thinks the space for generalists is going to be squeezed as funding is funneled to projects with clear feedback loops to the national interest. So donors are, are getting increasingly selfish, basically, and, and um, funding things which they see as in their own immediate interests. And away from risky or hard to measure institutional reform or democratic deepening. Um, and then he's also lifted, he went back and looked at some of the other blogs on the, on From Poverty to Power and Elsewhere uh, with top tips from sector veterans. The main advice is to network, network, network. And this involves putting yourself out there, attending events, cold calling organisations, asking people you admire or want to learn from for coffee, whether on Zoom or in person. You know, having a presence, blogging, all sorts of things you do to, to help you build your network. And then he finishes with, you know, there's also the need to learn soft skills from writing succinct emails that get a response, presenting to colleagues, um, convening different people to come together in a room and work on something, working across cultures, delivering bad news without getting, you know, um, too shrill, too, too, too awkward about it, asking for help if you're stuck. And it's amazing, he says, how formal education doesn't equip you for these things. And it is actually true. Yeah, the majority of things that actually help you get through your working day in good order are things not taught at college, which I think is kind of alarming, really. Um, and then finally, because Tom um, did a full PhD, he gives a bit of advice on the academic route. And to be honest, he normally tells people not to do PhDs. But he says, if you do want to do one, do it part time. Um, unless you want to be a full-time academic, in which case it's part of the you know um, career track. To my mind, a PhD is about as valuable to most of the sector as an MA, and it can completely stunt your soft skills growth. So basically you're sat, sat in a room climbing the walls for four years. You don't really build your ability to network or your ability to um, you know, uh, uh, read the room and, and sort of get inside other people's heads. So uh, he's fairly sceptical about the importance of PhDs. Third post was uh, by another uh, colleague, a, a, an old friend who I worked with way back when at CAFOD, the Catholic Aid Agency, called Henry Northover. The post is called Beyond Political Will, How Leadership Makes a Difference on Water and Sanitation. And this is um, when Henry Northover left uh, CAFOD, he ended up at Water Aid, which is a great organisation, very focused on water and sanitation. And I think he became head of policy there and he recently left to become a consultant, as people do. Um, but he's just published a paper with Watertrade on this topic of political will. Um, and it's, exercise, it's kind of an exercise in positive deviance in that he's looking at cases where governments and leaders have shown genuine commitment to sorting out the, the, the lamentable state of water and sanitation in many countries. So he starts off with a rather racy way. I've sat through too many presentations in the water, sanitation and hygiene which wash sector that end with the neat conclusion all that's needed is greater political will thank you and good night and as i've been saying for a long time on the blog i think the first blog i wrote on this was about 12 years ago political will saying there's no political will is a really dumb thing to say because what you're basically saying is i don't understand what sort of political um, coalition could achieve the chain the change i'm looking for therefore i'm just going to moan about the lack of political will Saying politicians lack political will is often just a synonym for saying they don't want to do something that's going to harm themselves. 
which is not a great, you know, uh, not a great help. So Henry's paper looks at four identifiable factors in cases where leadership drives change on, on WASH. It echoes a lot of other findings on political economy, on adaptive management. So I think it, it, it's kind of coherent with a lot of the other posts on this blog. Um, heads of government personally aligned themselves with the core mission. So you've got to have the main person backing you. In India, Prime Minister Modi personally chose Mahatma Gandhi's glasses as the symbol of the national campaign to end open defecation. It was his way of articulating the mission as the fulfilment of an historic legacy. So, you know, uh, uh, interesting point of, uh, and probably the only time in recent in, that I can think of where anybody said anything positive about, um, about Modi. Um, but uh, there it is on this blog. Second point, a whole of government approach was taken where bureaucratic structures were designed and coordinated around activities and goal oriented achievements. So what that means is, you know, you need to get all the different ministries talking to each other and, and, and pushing in the same direction. In Malaysia, local officials were instructed by government to have what were termed weekly morning prayers around maps of sanitation coverage to monitor progress and iron out interdepartmental differences. I really wish we had a photograph of the morning prayers. I suspect that's just a metaphor, but it would be wonderful if they were actually bowing down to maps of sanitation coverage. Um, local level imp implementers were given relative autonomy. So that's where we're into the adaptive management thing, that the people who understand the, the context are the people closest to the ground. You have to unleash them, let them get on with things, let them make decisions, not always be referring upwards. And then finally, the development of a bureaucratic culture that encouraged the diagnosing of design mistakes and implementation weaknesses while generating remedial course correcting actions. So you want civil servants to, when they see something not working, to think, if I tell my boss that this thing is not working, it will look good. It will not destroy my career. Absolutely crucial that that diagnosis of design failures and mistakes is seen as a positive. Otherwise, people just keep covering up problems and you don't get any of that iteration and adaptation and improvement. Then he finishes, while most of these effective leadership traits are well known to many donors, it's surprising how few development programmes are explicitly designed to support leaders to devise country-led reforms. Instead, they often focus on idealised structures of delivery systems rather than how or whether they function. So that's this point that, you know, donors still say, you know, we've got the best practice guidelines. We want you to do this because it's worked in these countries. We want you to roll it out in your country. And they ignore these lessons which Henry's um, got from uh, his work at Wartrade and put in this paper. So his conclusion is that donors need to shift support to these cyclical diagnostic and reform functions and away from static forms and structures. So they've got to get with the thinking and working politically program is, is my summary of that. Then the final post of the week, I reviewed a, a really interesting ebook by um, some Dutch researchers, Margit van Vessel, Wenny Ho, Edriga, Marty and Peter Tamas. And sorry if I've mispronounced some or all of those. Um, the ebook is on local advocacy in fragile and conflict affected states. So th this is important because these places, the Somalias, the DRCs, the Yemens, are the places where most aid is going to end up because more stable places are going to grow out of aid dependence and just get on with normal politics. So how does local advocacy by local NGOs work in these fragile and conflict affected places? And to answer that question, the researchers talked to the local partners of the Dutch NGO Cordate, 
and they used a methodology called which they called narrative assessment which sounds terribly impressive but just seems to be listening to people's stories i may have i may be oversimplifying um so they look they talked to national ngos in south sudan nigeria burundi central african republic and afghanistan and all of them were working on aspects of social cohesion and the social contract between citizens and states so for example um, oil revenues in South Sudan should be a uh, percentage of those should be um, given directly to communities in oil producing countries and oil producing regions of South Sudan and they weren't so there was a, a yeah really interesting campaign which got that um, reform implemented um, another one in Central African Republic on tackling gender-based violence in schools so they were looking at these questions of social cohesion social contract um, and again, the findings into also a lot of the literature on adaptive management, but they have some interesting new insights. So I'll just read out a bit from the paper to give you that, that sense of what's the same and what's slightly different. When it comes to strategies, we see important roles for generally acknowledged strategies such as evidence-based advocacy, public campaigning and lobbying. However, the stories provide two fresh insights on strategizing. A first insight is that advocacy strategies are often part of organisations' wider involvement with change, involving a range of stakeholders in a societal domain that rather than mainly decision makers or the public. So piloting and modelling innovative practices and involving multiple state and non-state actors are key strategies in three of the stories. In the two others, mobilisation for policy change and implementation involves engagement with many diverse stakeholders in coordinated efforts of mobilisation, collaboration and coordination. Summarising that rather dense academic paragraph is that um, it's not enough to do what a sort of what a what a sort of a British lobby NGO would do, which is you know find the people who are making the decisions, present evidence, go and talk to them directly. You've got to work much more broadly on the issue to have credibility and to have the the networks. And because power and decision making is much more dispersed in these places, you can't identify directly who you want to influence. So you've got to be a bit more canny and spread your work a little bit more widely. In all the stories, we see that organisations seek to engage and convince state agencies, but also to mobilise and harness the power of informal authorities, such as that of religious and community leaders. And we see that they engage other diverse societal groups, such as youth organisations, relevant professional groups, such as teachers. While each single strategy, such as awareness raising of communities or developing a research report, may not be innovative in itself, the carefully and dynamically crafted combinations of strategic actor engagement are. Each combination is made to fit its context, creating momentum and the opportunity for leveraging beyond what individual organisations or strategies could achieve. So, so again, you've got to spread your work more widely and get a sort of critical mass of players involved, reflecting that point that I always make on fragile and conflict-affected states, which is that the nature of public authority of who people listen to and who people uh, obey is much more dispersed and fragmented in these places than it is in many more stable settings. A second insight is that strategic engagement with different actors is developed from a close and continually updated analysis of what approach can work where and with whom, creatively testing ways to move forward while often seeking to overcome or circumvent challenging contextual factors. So that's basically saying adaptive management. That is exactly what adaptive management describes. Right? For outside organisations supporting such work, 
Implementations include backing local organisations to use their political antennae to learn, adapt and move on, and not insisting on the artificial separation between service delivery and advocacy. They are often interwoven. When so much is down to the ability to read and respond to the context, training manuals may be less useful than setting up conversations between people working on the ground in this way in different countries. So that, I think, is quite a useful um, insight that you're um, getting better getting people who are doing this stuff talking to each other than shoving training manuals down their throats. I think that's probably enough for one week. Um, go and have a nice weekend. I'm off, you know, walking, running, swimming, enjoying my new freedoms. And I hope you are too. Bye.